This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver's new police chief is my guest, Paul Pazin, a man Mayor Michael Hancock says is a unifier in the department and the community. The same wasn't always said of Pazin's predecessor, Robert White, who fought a number of skirmishes on both fronts. For now, Pazin seems to be getting the benefit of the doubt, with one of White's frequent internal critics calling his hire a home run. And Chief Pazin, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. I want to start by playing something you said as you introduced your new team last week. Just as important as addressing crime, it's also important to address the fear of crime. I thought that was a fascinating thing to say, not just for police to address crime, but the fear of it. Will you expound on what that means? So this is uh, part of our social harms areas that we want to emphasize moving forward. And and I'd I'd like to go backwards just for a second. Uh, Chief White has left a uh, legacy, a foundation that we in the Denver Police Department now get to jump off from and uh, raise the bar, take this to the next level. And our next level is reducing social harms. Part of reducing social harms. What are social harms? So perfect. Uh, is it, it's what we just talked about with uh, the fear of crime, as well as many of the uh, social issues that impact uh, our response uh, to, to challenges, and how we can better address mental health and substance abuse issues as well. So, it it involves uh, traffic issues. Uh, We are multimodal and we're talking about having uh, pedestrians and bikes and scooters on the same roads uh, as our vehicles. We have to learn to share our roads. And these are part of uh, social harm. So oftentimes when we talk about that foundation of preventing crime and treating people with respect and dignity, that's fantastic. But now is the time to take it to the next level. And that next level is reducing social harms. Reducing social harms. Things that hurt us? Is that fundamentally what you mean? Uh, So so social harms, it's that fear of crime issue, right? So um, if I hold up a piece of paper and it shows crime trending up or crime trending down, but somebody doesn't feel safe to use the wonderful amenities in our city, if they don't feel safe going to a park or uh, to an entertainment uh, district, then we have lots of challenges ahead as a result of it. It doesn't matter if crime is pointing down. It's the fear of crime. And that's one of the areas where we're going to improve. Now, help me understand how the police address the fear of crime. And so if someone doesn't feel safe going to the park, what do you do to change that? Uh, So how we're going to do this is through a precision policing model. And and uh, what we do here is there's 78 amazing neighborhoods in Denver. The example would be Sun Valley or Cherry Creek, right? Two uh, very different neighborhoods in all aspects. What the needs are in Sun Valley with high levels of mental health challenges, high levels of sus- substance abuse issues, an immigrant and refugee community are completely different than the Cherry Creek neighborhood. So our partnerships in Sun Valley would be more with the nonprofits that are in there, including uh, mental health uh, services, including uh, innovative approaches to uh, substance abuse like the Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Program. We are 
equipping the officers to deal with those issues to address the social harms that impact that neighborhood using drilling down data into the 142 census tracts in order to better equip our team and the collaboration of our team and our partners, traditional and non-traditional, in order to address those concerns. In Cherry Creek, we have they have uh, needs as well, but our partnerships are are different. Our data is is different. They're much we'll, wealthier neighborhood. Well, we'll we'll work with business associations, neighborhood associations, because we need uh, the the they deserve the same type of police service as any other of the seventy eight neighborhoods. We need to make sure that we are addressing each individual need based on the data that we're looking at. You went on to call Denver, quote, a remarkably safe city. And yet, according to a May article in the Denver Post, there were 27 homicides reported in Denver on pace to reach a 10-year high. So reconcile that for me, saying it's a remarkably safe city, and yet there seems to be an uptick in in homicides. So... It, Denver is a remarkably uh, safe st- city, and I stand by that. Uh, when we're talking about the the homicides and the increase that we have this year over last year, is we we are using data and we're looking for commonality. We're looking for any types of trends. Are you seeing any? Uh, we are not. So, uh, and and we we discussed this uh, proactively on any of the issues that we've seen uh, with this. So, there's a lot of uh, random issues uh, here, but we also have some some strategies and solutions to address the most violent crimes in our city. So. We talked about reducing social harms. We talked about utilizing the precision policing model. One of the other things that I've uh, discussed is our focused deterrence model with regards to domestic violence. Now, um, this is uh, an area that we can be more effective in proactively addressing the other half of the equation. We will continue to offer amazing services to victims of domestic violence. We can be more proactive on the offender side And when I say proactive, we're talking before there are criminal charges, that we can offer resources to folks uh, out there before an incident occurs. That is to say, offering those to folks who might beat a loved one? Yes. So again, this is uh, part of that whole social harms, precision policing. How do you get involved before something happens? Like pre-crime. Uh, th- this is why that data is so important for us. So if we have uh, an indiv- individual who's uh, paid their debt to society for a, uh, a violent domestic violence uh, incident and they have a history of that, if we're proactively offering services and, and connecting with uh, folks at the highest uh, tier of this pyramid as well as all the way down to the lowest tier of this pyramid. Potentially, the example would on, on the low end of the, the pyramid would be folks that are involved in a verbal-only domestic violence. Okay, so police are called because maybe the neighbors hear a bunch of noise next door. There have been no punches thrown. Right. But police show up and they try to intervene. They realize the history, perhaps, of the offender, and they try to intervene earlier. 
and we're connecting with nonprofits, we're connecting folks with resources, and we're doing this proactively in order to prevent future incidences of domestic violence, future victimization uh, caused by domestic violence. Now, it's interesting that you brought that up in the context of me asking about the homicide rate. Are you saying that there's a connection between those two? Uh, one might lead to the other. Uh, I'm, I'm saying that uh, we're looking at all of the violent crime and coming up with solutions. There's also a focused deterrence model that we will utilize uh, in order to be more proactive with uh, individuals that may be going down uh, a path towards uh, gang involvement, gang active. So uh, we are we are utilizing these uh, try tie excuse me, uh, tested programs, these evaluated programs, these proven programs to help us address violent crimes as well. But I want to get very clear on the homicide rate. You do not see a pattern. You can't say this is because of increased gang violence or this is because of economic factors. Is it a blip uh, or is it just that you can't yet explain it? Uh, I can tell you that we have looked at this uh, extensively, trying to identify any patterns, trying to identify any trends, and there are not any with uh, this year's current incidences. All right. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Denver's new police chief. He is Paul Pazin. And uh, Chief, the critic we referred to in the introduction is Nick Rogers, president of the police union. He's the one who called your hire a home run. Uh, Another frequent critic of the police department has been Lisa Calderon of the Colorado Latino Forum, and we asked her about your hire. It would be really important for this administration to learn a lesson from the mistakes of the previous that you want to listen to your critics as well as your cheerleaders, because they're going to tell you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. And when we have critical voices at the table, it makes policies better and it makes community police relationships stronger. We should point out that she has filed a federal lawsuit against the city alleging retaliation that the city didn't renew a contract with her because she was critical of the administration. But about what she said there, will there be a place for critics at the table and what does that look like to you? So I agree with uh, what Ms. Calderon uh, said uh, in her statement that you played there. Uh, We do need to listen to critics as well. If we surround ourselves with yes people, then uh, the emperor's new clothes, and and we don't want that to to happen. Uh, We want to make sure that uh, when when we're talking about inclusiveness, uh, when we're talking about being uh, a unifier, this is what exactly what we're discussing. How will you hear those voices, maybe on a daily basis? uh, So it, it is by engaging in conversations with folks that may have a completely different perspective. I know that we can surround ourselves with uh, other law enforcement uh, voices and everybody see things through blue lenses, but that's not what this administration is going to do. We have, I have calendar uh, meetings already set up for some of our harshest critics and ways that we can come up with solutions together. And we have done this in the past of working uh, with, with folks that are on the other side of the spectrum that, that oversee uh, police discipline, that, that uh, have been uh, involved in high levels of use of force that now want to work towards solutions. We are all ears when it comes to that, because ultimately it's about the people of Denver and how we can provide better service for them moving forward. And I'll be the first one to tell you, 
I or my administration doesn't have all the answers. We need these voices to help us come up with real, meaningful, impactful solutions that will help the people of Denver. I want to talk just briefly about the department's new use of force policy. It's been in place about 18 months, and it's run into some resistance. The current iteration talks about the type of force used. Uh, Others, like Lisa Calderon of the Colorado Latina Forum, uh, who's also on the Use of Force Citizens Committee, thinks that the degree of force used paints a more accurate picture. If you were handcuffed, the type of force, which is the handcuffs, is authorized under the new policy and the old policy. What we are still fighting for is a recognition for degree, which means how tightly you put those handcuffs on could be excessive force. She points to a recent incident in which a journalist, Susan Green, suffered bruised wrists after being handcuffed by an officer. What, what do you make of that distinction, that it's not just the type of force, but, but just how it's executed? So uh, the, can I just correct a, a quick little statement? Please do. So uh, the new use of force policy has not been in place for 18 months. Uh, it's been worked on for 19 months with uh, countless meetings. Um, Chief White has uh, vowed to uh, get this policy out uh, by utilizing lots of different uh, perspectives and in, in, in having community input uh, throughout this process. Um, our use of force policy isn't uh, ready to roll out because the implementation and the training is my charge. And what we are going to do with the implementation and training is make sure that it's done right. Uh, we can and, do and to this. Her point, do you, do you take that point that it's about how it's done, not just what is done? Uh, I, I think we are talking about the how. Now, now let me give the, the distinction uh, here is I want to focus on how we roll out the policy, how we implement the policy, and most importantly, how we train the policy. We want to ensure that uh, our officers are well-equipped to, to go out there and interpret the, the meaning and the intent exactly how it was designed with all of this 19 months uh, worth of effort into it. And we're going to be very comprehensive in how we roll out this training. It's not going to just uh, put the final policy in print, hit an email to all employees and say, good luck. It is about ensuring that our officers have a deep understanding of the gray areas. Paul Bazin is Denver's new police chief. There aren't just unaffiliated voters in Colorado. There are unaffiliated candidates. And the group Unite Colorado wants more of them. Unite Colorado is an organization of Democrats, Republicans, and independents who want to elect common sense problem solvers to office. This is Nick Troiano, the group's executive director. And I asked him how the experiment's coming along. Unite Colorado has endorsed five candidates for state legislature uh, to give voters another choice not just Democrats and Republicans, but independents who can represent the people and not their parties or their special interests. The implication there is that uh, there's no Democratic or Republican politician representing the people. That can't possibly be true. I don't think that's our claim. I I think that there's good people stuck in a broken system because all of the incentives of politics today are to play to the base of the party, to play to the donors of the campaigns, even to play to hyperpartisan media. And so we want to elect people to office who are free 
free from those incentives who actually can represent the people. They don't run through primary elections. All of our candidates are not accepting special interest PAC contributions. So they actually aren't beholden to anyone but the folks in their districts. And why did you choose Colorado to focus on? Colorado is the focus because Colorado is the epicenter of the independent movement. If you look at voter registration statistics between January and June of this year, Democrats gained about 9,000 voters, Republicans about 2,000, and independents over 55,000 voters. Uh, There is a swell of people leaving uh, both parties that no longer represent them. But most of them, aren't they really just partisans who are sort of going under the unaffiliated banner? No. In fact, 75 percent of independents, according to our research, actually alternate their ballot between Democrats and Republicans. Those who do lean one way consistently or the other do so because there's not a third choice. And that's this phenomenon called negative partisanship. Everyone knows which party they don't like today, but no one really has a home they feel comfortable in. And that's the new, the new option we hope to provide. You're trying to build that home. Uh, indeed, your goal was to get five independent candidates on the November ballot in Colorado. You've made that happen. Uh, one is running for state Senate, the others for state House. Tell us about like one or two of them. Sure. We have a diverse slate of five candidates. Um, Three are running in districts that have traditionally been Democrat, two in districts that have traditionally been Republican. So any accusation that you're targeting more Democratic districts or more Republican districts, you say, is Uh, is is unfounded. unfounded. Uh, The Democrats say we're here to take away Democratic votes. Republicans say we're here to take away Republican votes. And for the first time, they're both right. Uh, (laughs) We are going after both parties to build a coalition to elect some new leaders to the legislature. Part of the slate a veteran, an ethics professor, an IBM consultant, an economic development expert, a small business owner, and a game warden. And so these are people who are ingrained in their communities who come from a diversity of backgrounds trying to pioneer a new path. The Senate candidate is running in a district that uh, includes Douglas County. The House districts are all over. Uh, You've got one in uh, El Paso County, another in Boulder, Broomfield, and uh, two races on the Western Slope, including one in Mesa County. Have your candidates been registered with a party before? Have they long been unaffiliated? What? Like many unaffiliated voters, they once maybe had a home in one of the parties. But as we've seen growing trends of polarization, each party going to their respective extremes, these independents, you know, unaffiliated in, in recent years, two of them used to be Democrats, two of them used to be Republicans, one was a lifelong independent. Here's what I've had trouble getting my head around. How you screen for common sense. I mean, the thing is, like, when Republicans talk about policies they like, they say, let's pass common sense reforms. And when Democrats talk about policies they like, they use the term common sense. Who's to say what common sense is? Well, we have a statement of principles on our website at UniteColorado.org that all of these candidates have signed on to. Throw a few of those out for us. So one principle is putting the public interest ahead of the party or special interest. So you represent the people. The second is the point that— How do you test for that? Well, it's by virtue of taking the harder road as an independent. I mean, if these folks wanted to be sure they wanted to be elected to office, they'd surely pick a primary to run through. But the fact that they're taking a harder road to run as an independent shows a commitment to the desire of representing the people. But to your question, I think what we're screening for is not only common sense, which could be subjective, it's the desire to find common ground. Do you believe that the point of governance is to actually solve problems rather than just score points? A plurality of people in this state believe that both parties in the legislature are just there to score points and win elections and not to get anything done. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say if you ask that question of a Republican or a Democrat, are you in this to solve problems? They'd say yes. 
You know, like, I just how I, do you believe that person's answer over someone else's? I think because we've seen it in the legislature. Um, when Representative Cole Wist, a Republican in the House, proposed some common sense gun legislation, he was almost stripped of his leadership position and the bill was defeated. On the Democratic side, uh, the minority leader in the Senate stepped down this last session because she said that she just couldn't work with the other side anymore. And so there is signs of intransigence in both parties. And that's really what we're trying to fight against. Let's play this out. The state Senate is narrowly under Republican control. Okay, so let's say uh, this independent in the state Senate race were elected and the Senate goes 17, 17 and one. Right. 17 Democrats, 17 Republican and one independent. Is that your dream scenario? Yes, we call that the fulcrum strategy. That's the real leverage point where independents can transform governance by controlling the balance of power. And so those independents in that coalition could actually decide who the majority leader is, how the committees are structured, what the issue agenda is to ensure that governance is more about problem solving than point scoring. And we've already seen signs of how independents can be effective in the legislature because this last session, State Senator Sherry John left the Democratic Party to serve as an independent in her last term. And we've seen that her independence was critical in helping to achieve a breakthrough on the major transportation bill. Uh, even outside the legislature, when we saw progress forward on redistricting reform, it was independent Kent Theory, um, a business leader here in Colorado, who was able to bring together both sides. And so independents he, have- He's an, not a lawmaker, to correct. be clear. Yeah. Yeah, he, independents have demonstrated an ability of bringing together both sides and encouraging conversations that otherwise don't happen. Kent Theory, the CEO of DeVita. How did you go about endorsing the five in Colorado? Like, were you contacting them? Did they approach you? Well, starting last summer, we undertook a pretty massive outreach campaign to over 2,000 community leaders across the state, especially in districts where we thought independents would have a viable path to victory and encouraged people to run for office. So you looked at the the voter numbers, for instance, the number of unaffiliated voters in a particular district. Correct. In many of our districts, independents actually outnumber both Democrats uh, and Republicans. And so we would begin to vet people who are interested in running. Uh, Are they someone of strong personal character and integrity? Do they align with our common sense principles? Uh, Do they have the ability to run a competitive campaign? Because we're here to win races, not just make noise. And ultimately, that's how we found the five candidates that we've endorsed. Approaching them? Approaching them. Uh, They otherwise wouldn't be uh, running had not Unite Colorado Mm. built this infrastructure and encouraged them to do so. What if gay marriage or abortion or oil and gas is my driving issue? What do I do with these traits? You know, common sense and, and trying to find a solution. How do you sort of square issue-driven voters? Well, I think both parties have an incentive to make it seem like these are intractable issues where there's no room for compromise, when in reality, I think uh, that there is. The independents who are running ultimately— On on abortion, you think? I mean, I think both sides, for example, would like to reduce the number of abortions that happen in our country, and there there are ways to do that. In fact, Colorado, through um, some programs, is leading the way on that. So it's about pragmatism. But these independents have to be able to answer the questions on the issues. And guess what? They might not all agree with each other, and that's okay. This isn't about trying to find absolute consensus on every issue. It's about doing the hard work of legislating, which is trying to find where there is common ground and making progress. Let's talk about how they raise money. So you said uh, that they are not taking contributions from Uh, political action committees. Okay, so from PACs. Where's their money coming from? Is part of your endorsement that you're funneling cash to them? 
the candidates themselves are raising yeah. dollars from their own uh, networks, all individuals, not from PACs. Their opponents, on the other hand, tens of thousands of dollars already uh, in their campaign accounts from different special interests around the state. Unite Colorado is also helping to mobilize our grassroots community to contribute to their campaigns. Uh, so in the first quarter of this year, our five candidates outraised both their Democratic and Republican incumbents, which I think is a powerful sign that uh, they're in these races to win them. So th- the actual organization of Unite Colorado does not give directly to these candidates. It is the sort of force that helps others give. Am I right about that? Uh, we have a small donor committee. So we aggregate small contributions to contribute to candidates. Okay. And then we encourage our community to directly contribute as well. What do your largest donors, everyone from like a bigwig at Merrill Lynch to a former NASA engineer, what do they get out of this? And would you take money from anyone? It's a good question. So they come from across the political spectrum. Surely we wouldn't accept money from anyone, but we certainly appreciate dollars from folks who believe in the cause of improving governance. Who wouldn't you take money from? Uh, I think we would have to give a hard uh, thought to large donors that may have been aligned uh, to one party or ideology in the past. But it'd be interesting if we did that in sort of a Noah's Ark style, where if they wanted to come together to the Unite movement, they'd be more than welcome. You used to be called the Centrist Project, and and now it's Unite Colorado and Unite America for the races outside of this state. Why the name change? We wanted a brand that reflected the reality of this political moment, which is that the biggest chasm in our politics isn't between left and right and Democrats and Republicans. It's between those in the political class who want to divide us for their own benefit, whether that's to raise money or to get votes or to gain media attention, and those that want to unite us to actually solve problems and serve the public. And so we're building a movement of uniters uh, here in Colorado and across the country. As opposed to centrists, I would say who it, are sort of the average of the two-party system that you loathe. Well, that's one of the misconceptions uh-huh. of the term centrist, is the average of both sides. It's not a midway point. It's actually about championing the best ideas of both sides, whether that comes from Democrats or Republicans, or especially ideas that neither party is championing. But Because of that confusion is yet another reason why we believe that um, the Unite movement will be more resonant with people across the spectrum. I think your interpretation of this political moment is fascinating because so many observers think that it it truly is a hyper-partisanship between left and right. You don't think that's true of individual voters so much as, I guess, of the the two-party system in general, that they're, they're victims of that in a way. I think so. I think the political duopoly is structured in a way that magnifies our differences rather than narrows them for its own interests at the end of the day. And I think most voters are willing to sit down with their neighbors and get things done. They do that in their families, do that at work every day. It's just when it comes to politics that we seem to be first split up into Team Red and Team Blue. Thanks, Nick, for being with us. Of course. Nick Troiano is executive director of Unite America and Unite Colorado, a project to get more independence into elected office. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Grand Junction Daily Sentinel will stop publishing a paper edition Mondays and Tuesdays. Readers will get an electronic edition in their emails instead. The change starts next month, 
Publisher Jay Seaton says new tariffs on Canadian newsprint, that is the paper it's printed on, helped drive this decision. Seaton's with me from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Hi, Jay. Good morning, Ryan. Now, this 32% tariff is meant to protect U.S. paper mills. Uh, the charge is that the Canadian government unfairly subsidizes its paper industry and that the Department of Commerce needs to even the playing field. Uh, what has that meant for your newspaper? Well, it's it's been a rough it's been a rough blow for us, but that comes at a time when um, paper, newsprint prices have been escalating over the last several years as paper mills consolidate and wind down their operations. As there's you know fewer fewer demand for newsprint, such that you know we've been seeing increases over years, but this the tariffs um, skyrocketed the, these numbers over about the the last eight months. All right. So this was already a trend and this was something of a death knell, I suppose. Uh, That's along with other factors, of course, facing newspapers that uh, make it a a tough business economically. You know, it's it's been it's been tight. Um, And frankly, you know, there's only a few tools in the newspaper publisher's toolbox. Um, You know, one of them is you can you can really gut your newsroom, gut your operation. Uh, You can increase your subscription rates. Or you can try to um, you know, save money on production. We, what we decide is we, we can't we, uh, offer our subscribers a, a, a 30% increase. We don't want to cut our newsroom. We, we think that's a zero-sum game. And so we were finding, looking for ways to find efficiencies in, in our production and delivery. And so this was, this was the low-hanging fruit um, that, that, frankly, uh, made the most sense, but it doesn't come without a cost. Other newspapers like the Tampa Bay Times indeed have cut staff in response to these tariffs. It sounds like that's something you wanted to avoid. All right, you announced this Sunday. How have readers reacted to the idea of losing the paper edition two days a week? You know, it's it's been mixed. My email box has exploded, but um, I get a lot of support. You know, folks say, we get it. You know, we, we value good journalism, and good journalism um, is expensive. So we uh, we appreciate what you're doing. But on the other hand, I've received an enormous number of calls um, from our older readers who um, don't have computers and don't uh, care to learn about a computer. And so, you know, they're, they feel like they're getting shut out of two days of news. And that's that's really heartbreaking from, you know, from my chair. Uh, why did you choose Monday and Tuesday? I mean, I know that Monday tends to be one of the less read papers, but a lot of news happens on Monday nights. I think of city council meetings, things like that, you know, so that's news going into Tuesday. It's an interesting strategy to decide which days to make an e-edition. So to get the savings that we were looking for, we needed to put two days together. And so the the two days that were most logical were Monday and Tuesday. And while you're right, there is news committed on Mondays that we need to get in the paper on Tuesday. We are putting out an edition on Mondays and Tuesdays. It's just that it's being delivered electronically. And we're going to do everything we can to get our all of our subscribers up and familiar with the e-edition. So they're, they're accustomed to consuming the Sentinel News information that way on their Mondays and Tuesdays. And we anticipate that over the course of time, we'll be producing less and less of a paper uh, paper product and, and more people will be consuming the electronic uh, edition. Okay, so it might lead to additional days of paperless papers? We are not anticipating that right now, but as I think as uh, consumption habits alter, 
alter. Um, we, we will just follow what our what our subscribers are doing. So, it it it. I anticipate over the you know we're going to be printing a newspaper for the next ten to twenty years. Um, but people are now consuming their news through a variety of media, including their devices and and whatever's next, whatever we haven't in, even invented yet. Mm-hmm. The chip in my head, maybe. Uh, speaking of other media, while you are scaling back the paper product, your media company is spending money on something else. Radio, buying four stations on the Western Slope. Why radio in 2018? Well, the the Federal Communications Commission, in its wisdom last year, uh, ended the prohibition on cross-ownership between newspapers and uh, radio stations in the same market. So we felt like it was an appropriate moment to uh, combine these operations because there's a whole lot of overlap. Um, It's also a hedge. We have uh, newspapers in other markets that are doing, you know, they're they're tight like we are on the edge. and we have radio stations in other markets that are doing quite well. So it it is a financial hedge to some extent, but we also think there's enormous upside and synergistic opportunity with radio and the the cross pollination between these two media. Um, in addition to adding you know robust news content to these what are you know really FM music stations, I think is uh, it, it is. Creates real possibilities for us. So the idea would be to share the power of the newspaper newsroom with the radio listeners. Jay, thanks for being with us. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much. Jay Seaton, publisher of the Grand Junction Daily Sentinel, which will go digital only two days a week starting next month. Two remembrances for you now. First, a retired Denver high school teacher named Dick Jordan, who died last month. Every year, starting in the 1960s, Jordan issued a challenge to his students at George Washington and Manuel High Schools. One of his former students, NPR's Scott Horsley, filed a story about it in 2000. In 1962, Dick Jordan was a novice teacher at Denver's George Washington High School when he whimsically suggested to his American history students that they meet back on the steps of the main public library at noon, January 1st of the year 2000. At the time, the date seemed almost impossibly far in the future, but the invitation caught many students' imaginations, and Jordan would repeat it to his classes year after year. That's how it really got started, and it was just kids would remind me. I'd have some kids in a different class, and they'd say, remember what you said? So it went on and on. Ted Conover heard Jordan's invitation a quarter century ago. Now an author living in New York, Conover has had the date marked on his mental calendar ever since. Really, when you look at the ways other people are celebrating Y2K, it's hard to think of a better way than uh, to meet up with an old history teacher who uh, invited you to, to keep this promise long ago. Jordan not only taught history, but in the early 1970s, he lived it. When Denver's schools were desegregated, Jordan and a few other teachers transferred from George Washington High in an affluent white neighborhood to Manuel High School in what was then the nearly all-black neighborhood of Five Points. He and others led integrated rafting field trips down Colorado's Yampa and Green Rivers. And over time, they helped shape Manuel into one of the city's best public schools. Jordan left teaching in 1984 to become a school administrator, and he retired from the public schools altogether in 1995, the year before mandatory busing in Denver ended. I'm sure there's lots of conservatives out there that say busing never worked and integration never worked and the white flight, all the whites that didn't go. But at Manuel, for at least... The 11 years I was there, it was one special place. Many of Jordan's former students obviously thought so, too. 
January 1st dawned clear and bright in Colorado. As noontime approached, a few people began to gather in front of the library, carrying yearbooks and old photographs. Soon, there were hundreds until they filled the plaza in front of the building. Some came from across town, others from across the country. All of them came to see Dick Jordan. It was like a high school reunion multiplied many times over as people hugged former classmates and brothers and sisters of classmates they hadn't seen in decades. Many people brought their own children to see the man who taught them in high school. Volunteers passed out stickers for people to wear saying Y2J, the J standing for Jordan. Someone set up a PA system and handed their former teacher the microphone. I can't believe this, folks. I've been saying, what am I going to say? And, of course, a lot of you think that I always had something to say. I would like to say to all of you, thank you for honoring me, and it's been a wonderful life. Then, for the next two hours, Jordan posed for pictures with his former students as they shared memories with him and with one another. Stan Lankowitz was in Jordan's history class in 1964. He invited the whole class to his home. And in 64, to have a teacher be that real and that personable with the students, it just blew me away. It like shattered my whole notion of what, what teachers were all about. My greatest successes were giving other people exactly what he gave me, which is a sense of my worth and my dignity and my value. And that's what I remember. He was my favorite teacher of all time. Valerie Brickle Alexander brought along her senior yearbook from the manual class of 1978. I'm a historian, partly because of teachers like him who made it a subject that I just fell in love with. And this is like living history. I mean, here we see 30 years worth of people who were taught by him. And it's fun, and it's, it's unique, and it's different, and I think it's a cool way to spend the New Year. Nearly 100 years ago, another historian, Henry Adams, said teachers affect eternity. No one can tell where their influence stops. As the year 2000 dawned in Colorado this weekend, one special teacher got a pointed reminder of just how influential he's been. For NPR News, I'm Scott Horsley, Manual Class of 1984, in Denver. Scott Horsley from the year 2000. He's now a White House correspondent for NPR News. Dick Jordan's other former students include Denver Mayor Michael Hancock and former Colorado Treasurer Kerry Kennedy. A memorial service for Jordan is scheduled for Saturday afternoon at the Washington Park Boathouse in Denver. And finally, let's remember the legendary musician Henry Butler, who died this month at age 69. The blind pianist was basically a New Orleans guy, where he played alongside folks like Fats Domino and Dr. John. But Hurricane Katrina forced him to leave, so he came to Boulder. In 2006, I had the chance to sit down with him in the CPR Performance Studio. Henry Butler, welcome to Colorado Matters. It's good to be here with you, Ryan. Can you tell us where you lived in New Orleans? I was in the Gentilly section. My house was in between two canals that were breached. It was hard for my house to escape all of that water, even though it was a little bit elevated. What what did you do when Katrina was arriving? I left the day before the storm. I went uh, up to North Louisiana with some friends. They showed up at my house that Sunday morning saying they weren't leaving New Orleans without me, and I'm kind of glad they did that. 
Henry, what, what did you do when you realized you weren't going to be able to go back home? I left my home with uh, about four or five changes of clothes. And so the first thing we realized was we had to start shopping. We were in North Louisiana for about, oh, 10 or 11 days. And then I went out on the road doing prearranged gigs. So you're telling me that within weeks of probably the most stressful thing a human being could undergo, you're, you're playing music. Yes, and that was the most therapeutic thing that I could have done for myself. As a matter of fact, I was so glad that we had these jobs on the books. Otherwise, you know, it was just a matter of sitting around and watching all the craziness. Uh, so I wonder in this time when you're touring, you, you said that it was a therapeutic time. Was there a song you'd play that was particularly therapeutic that you might play for us? Well, actually, there was. During that little time where we were touring, we also took a week to record a record, uh, which is going to hopefully benefit those people who survived Katrina. I chose uh, a piece entitled Somewhere. Play us, a, play us a portion of that, would you? Certainly. There's a place for us Somewhere a place for us Peace and quiet and open air Wait for us somewhere That song takes on new meaning when you consider somewhere a place for us and you, well, and you think of the evacuees. Yes, one of the things uh, we wanted to do with this record was to uh, record some optimistic pieces, some optimistic compositions. The album is called Sing Me Back Home. Eventually, you decided that uh, somewhere there was a place for you in Colorado. That's correct. There was an olive branch extended by some people who really were dedicated to trying to help uh, New Orleans musicians. I really um, had a chance to live in Austin and Portland, San Francisco. I thought Boulder would be the best place for me to do a little self-study and kind of grow myself a little bit. 
Now, had you been to Boulder before? Uh, no, not really. No, but there was. So you're this, you're going on reputation alone. Well, maybe a little reputation, but it, there was this inner drive to get here because I knew what I had to do. I knew what I had to do for me. This uh, this idea of introspection, some examination. Yes. So yes. what what does that involve? Well, it involves finding out uh, who I am and finding out who. I was going to be after an event like this. You've been playing all along the front range while you've been yes. uh, in Colorado. How are you finding the music scene? It's very different, very different from New Orleans. Um, a lot of big venues here, a lot of theaters. It's just a different kind of a scene than, say, New Orleans or New York. It sort you... of reminds me more of, a say, a Los Angeles. Do you miss the the camaraderie of New Orleans? It's always nice to be amongst friends. But one of the things this storm has taught, me at least, is that we have to let our attachments go. We can't always get stuck with knowing that that thing or these people are going to be with you always. You know, that's not going to be the case. We'll get back to the storm, but let's let's get back to some music. All right. Uh, well, I'd like to hear something that typifies the the jazzier side of Henry Butler. How about if we do uh, a piece that's typical of the New Orleans musical mentality? We'll do a piece entitled "Down by the Riverside." <laughs> Butler now lives in Boulder, but he was one of the thousands displaced by Hurricane Katrina. The New Orleans jazz and blues musician is playing all along the front range while he calls Boulder home. 
You're not just a well-known musician, you are an evacuee who happens to be blind. Uh, how have you found the dealings with FEMA and um, other government agencies in the, in the aftermath of Katrina? I think they really didn't have a strategy for helping people with special needs, and especially people who were blind and or visually impaired. I wonder if you've written anything about Katrina. It's one of those things where I don't want to rush into that because things are still happening that are sort of affecting how I'm feeling about all of this. Well, I guess the ultimate question is whether you're going back to New Orleans eventually or whether Colorado gets to claim you as its, uh, as its own. I'd like to be able to rebuild in New Orleans, but I also know that it's probably not the smartest thing that I can do. The late Henry Butler speaking to me in 2006 in the CPR Performance Studio. He never lived in New Orleans again and wound up in New York. Butler died earlier this month at age 69. Let's leave on an up note the track Dixie Walker from Butler's final album. That's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow the show on Twitter at Colorado Matters. We are CPR News on Facebook. Thanks for spending time with us at Colorado Public Radio. I'm Ryan Moore.